Welcome to the Killer Tea Party. I am your host, Kate Woodage. If you find yourself interested in the grim, the criminal, or the murderous, I got you. There's no judgment here, only facts to thrill or horrify your friends with. Now, before we dive into this, I just have to say, you guys are friggin' amazing. I mean, all the support for this podcast so far has been awesome, and I love to know that you guys are loving this shit as much as I do, so thank you for being here. And don't forget to hit that follow button if you're a fan. Okay, so moving on from all the I have something I think you guys are going to love. Before we dip into today's tale, which is a good one, I have an update on last episode that blew my friggin' mind. My stepdad, shout out to you Paul, gave me such a piece of information I just had to share it with you guys. His dad actually was drinking buddies with John Hay, the acid bath murderer. I mean, I love it. I literally love it. Apparently, at a little place in Crawley called the George Hotel, his dad used to meet up with John and chill with a beer. This place was literally down the road from, you guessed it, the Leopold Road murder warehouse. When it came out that this guy was straight up melting people, apparently the community were really shocked. John was apparently a pretty charming and polite guy. Total surprise to find out he was a psychopath underneath it all. All I can say, Paul, is your dad dodged a friggin' bullet there. Could have easily been mentioned in this very podcast as a victim had any of their conversations conversation's gone the wrong way. So there you have it guys, I know somebody who knows somebody who knew a murderer. And that's my claim to serial killer fame. Now if you guys think that you can beat that, or have any hometown murder stories of your own, be sure to hit me up on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and just let me know. You could even be featured on a future episode. Anyways, after that amazing it's all about who you know story, let's get into it shall we? Today's episode features a myth, a legend, a murderer. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a couple what ails you, and let's talk murder. Let me take you back to 1919, March 19th to be exact, and you can literally hear music playing all over New Orleans. It was the sound of jazz. Now wealthy white New Orleanians all over hired bands to play for them in the red light district, and the clubs and the bars were packed to the absolute brim with people looking for a good time. It was a busy night for sure, but not for the reason that you think. This was not an ordinary night. These concerts were bred from fear to satiate an axe-wielding maniac who was said to come from hell itself. The axe murderer of New Orleans had terrorised the streets for almost a year and has never been identified. While it's impossible to actually verify if he is responsible for all of the murders we're going to talk about today, it is known that from May 1918 until October 1919, 12 people were brutally attacked across the city, seven of which actually actually died. Let's dive deeper here. Now, we have to realise that New Orleans back then was a troubled city. Lots of tension regarding race relations and plenty of violence. Italians lived in crowded slums that were severely lacking the police presence that other places had at the time. There's a lot of assumptions that the mafia controlled these neighbourhoods, but that is rooted in a lot of stereotyping and speculation, and only some factual evidence. Now, this was a very volatile environment to live in, and this was the perfect breeding ground for somebody like the Axeman. Now, our first murder was said to have occurred on May 22nd, 1918. The Axeman used a chisel to remove part of the door at the back of the house and enter the home of Joseph and Catherine Margios. The bodies were discovered by Joseph's brothers, Jake and Andrew, who also lived at the residence at the time. The couple were found brutally attacked. Catherine's body was found actually draped over her husband. Her neck slashed so deeply she was basically decapitated. Joseph suffered from wounds to his head and his face and was actually responsive when his brothers first found him. However, he did later succumb to his injuries. It was believed at the time that the killer had used Andrew's straight razor to slit Catherine's throat. This led to Andrew's suspicion and arrest. However, after being questioned, he was released due to lack of any other evidence linking him to the crime. 
the police did find a block away from the scene a message written in chalk which read Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Creepy right? Who is Mrs. Tony? Potentially another victim. The police at the time theorised that the message actually referred to Mrs. Tony Chiambra, a grocer who'd been killed at some point between 1911 and 1912. Our man wasn't done just yet. In the early hours of June 27th 1918 at the back of a grocery the Axeman struck again. Louis Bessemer and his mistress at the time, Harriet Lowe, were attacked while sleeping. Harriet was hacked with an axe above her left ear and was found unconscious at the scene of the crime, before being rushed to a nearby hospital. Louis, on the other hand, was struck right above his temple, which resulted in a skull fracture. The couple were originally discovered by a driver of the bakery wagon, John Zanker, who had arrived to make a routine delivery to the grocery. Zanker found the couple covered in their own blood, both bleeding from their huge head wounds. The axe the police found in the bathroom at the crime scene actually belonged to Louis, which caused him to become a suspect, of course. However, at the time, almost immediately after the crime, the police arrested a 41-year-old African-American man named Louis Ubicon, who was actually an employee at the grocery at the time. There was literally zero evidence tying him to the attacks, but the police decided he had conflicting accounts of his whereabouts during the crime. Bullshit, if you ask me. Police, especially back then, wanted an easy fix, and the high publicity of the case made them want a man in custody. It's simple. Shortly after the attack, Harriet claimed she remembered her attacker being a mulatto man, which refers to a mixed race guy. However, police brushed this off as to her being confused after the attack. They decided that the attack was clearly robbery related, however, nothing was actually stolen or missing. Eventually, they let Louis Ubicon go, only because they didn't have enough evidence to hold him. After that, they decided to look more into Louis himself, as they had actually found letters at the scene of German descent in his possession at the time, which led them to believe that he could in fact be a German spy. They of course arrested him, but two days later, police released Louis, and two of the head investigators on the case were actually demoted due to shoddy police work. I mean, come on guys, you had it all wrong and we're clearly clutching at straws here. Police did, however, arrest Louis at a later date after Harriet on her deathbed claimed it was actually Louis who attacked her. She passed away in hospital after failed surgery on August 5th, 1918. Louis was actually charged with murder since she had unfortunately succumbed to her injuries and served nine months in prison. He was eventually acquitted on May 1st, 1919, only after 10 minutes of jury deliberation. I mean, if this wasn't him and it was actually the axe man, what a stone cold bitch. On her deathbed, she just thought, screw it, I never liked him anyway. She did thrive off of the media at the time, making plenty of accounts of what actually happened to her. They were often scandalous and false. Being the mistress of Louis, when his real wife rocked up, the scandal erupted. After this, Harriet refused to help the police in their investigation any further, as she claimed to suspect the police chief Mooney at the time to be the one who went to the press with the scandal in the first place. This, for me, is your ultimate pick-me girl. Loves the attention, good or bad. Back to our murderer. Our next attack came on the evening of August 5th, 1918. Anna Schneider, a then eight-month pregnant woman, woke up to find a dark figure standing over her. He proceeded to bash her in the face repeatedly with a weapon. Anna was discovered by her husband, Ed, when he returned home from work. Can you imagine his mind when he saw her? He found Anna with her scalp sliced open and covered in blood. 
Anna couldn't remember anything about the attack other than it had been a dark figure and she remembered seeing an axe. Luckily, she went on to give birth to a completely healthy baby girl two days later. Ed told police at the time that nothing had actually been stolen except for a few dollars from his wallet, which again kind of rules out robbery as a motive for me. No windows and doors had been forced open, which made it kind of difficult to find the entry point of the axe man this time around. Police believed the weapon to be a lamp that was next to the bed when Anna was actually attacked, a weapon of opportunity. The attack on Anna was a change in the axe man's MO though, as Anna was neither a grocer or Italian like the previous victims. The police owned in on James Gleason, an ex-con, and arrested him shortly after the attack. However, yet again, the evidence wasn't there, other than the fact that James originally ran from the police when they found him, which turns out is out of fear of being arrested again, not a guilty conscience. He was an ex-con. He was too eventually released from police custody, and the lead investigators at the time were now convinced that this attack was linked to the previous cases of Bessemer and Maggio. Skip forward to August 10th, 1918. Pauline and Mary Bruno awake to a commotion in the room next door to theirs, where their uncle, Joseph Romano, was sleeping. Entering the room, they found poor old Joe had taken a massive blow to his head, cutting it wide open. Due to their quick reaction, they actually caught the guy fleeing the scene. However, it was dark and he was running, so the girls didn't actually get much of a good look. They did, however, see that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Realistically, this was nighttime. A lot of things looked dark, well, in the dark. Romano, despite his head wound, actually walked himself out to the ambulance outside. What a champ. However, he did unfortunately pass away two days later from the injury. RIP Joe. Their home had indeed been torn apart yet again, but nothing was taken, and now police had found another bloodied axe in the backyard. Now I actually want to give a shout out here to John D'Antonio. He was this retired detective at the time who came forward with his take on the case, and he honestly for me is the first authority figure with the clue. He hypothesised that the man who committed the Axeman murders was the same suspect who had killed several people back in 1911. He found similarities in the crime scenes and the attacks, which led him to believe they were perpetrated by the same individual. Put the pieces together, yas John. He also described the murderer to have a dual personality, like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation. He was probably a normal Joe Bloggs kind of guy who sometimes was overwhelmed with his need to kill. There wasn't necessarily some big motive at play here, just a desire to murder. Going forward again to March 10th, 1919. Screaming is heard coming from the home of Charles Cortemiglia, who lived with his wife, Rosie, and their infant daughter, Mary. Rosie apparently awoke to find her husband fighting off the Axeman, a fight he would unfortunately lose. A grocer named Orlando Giordano rushed to the scene upon hearing the screams and found the family had been attacked. Rosie was stood in the doorway sporting a pretty gnarly head wound, holding her, sorry to say guys, dead daughter. Mary had suffered a single blow to the back of her head. Oh, I can't even imagine. It's absolutely tragic. Charles was found on the floor, bleeding a whole lot. The couple were taken to hospital and both suffered from skull fractures at the time. But back at the scene, a bloody axe was found on the back porch and a panel on the back door had been chiseled open. Again though, nothing had been stolen. Now, this is where it takes a bit of a twisted turn. So Charles was released from the hospital after only a few days of having to stay there, but Rosie stayed until she regained consciousness later on. Now, when Rosie woke up, she claimed Orlando Giordano and his son Frank were the ones who had actually attacked her family. Luckily, the police thought about it a little bit at the time, and Orlando was only a 69-year-old man in poor health, so it definitely wasn't him. His son, who was 18 at the time, weighed over 200 pounds, and there's no way he would have fit through the panel on the door. Even Charles himself disputed his own wife's claims and denied that Orlando and his son were responsible. Now, this part pisses me off. The police, even despite all of this, arrested Orlando and Frank and charged them both with murder. 
they were somehow found guilty, Frank was sentenced to death by hanging and his father to life in prison. Now, almost a year later, Rosie actually admitted that she had accused them out of jealousy and spite and had made the whole thing up. Since her statement was the only evidence against Frank and Orlando, they were thankfully released from jail soon after. That bitch, I'm sorry, but that is so evil. Frank could have been hung for literally nothing. Karma is a bitch though, as after the trial against the Giordanos, Charles left his lying wife. Good for you, Charles. With all these murders going on at the time, fear had literally swept across New Orleans. Right about then, an anonymous letter was sent to the local newspapers at the time, and whoever wrote it was demanding to be published. And here is what that letter said. Now, I have to know it was actually addressed, hell, March 13th, 1919, which almost feels like a throwback to another notorious killer that we would definitely be talking about, Jack the Ripper, who too claims to be from hell. The letter reads, esteemed mortal. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axe Man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offence at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me but his satanic majesty francis joseph etc but tell them to beware let them not try to discover what i am for it better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe man i don't think there is any need of such a warning for i feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past they are wise and know how to keep away from all harm undoubtedly you orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer which i am but i could be much worse if i wanted to if i wished i could pay a visit to your city every night as will i could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst for i am in close relationship with the angel of death so this guy is basically saying that the police are dumb and will never catch him it's completely berating and taunting the police and he's getting off on his anonymity. He goes on to say, now to be exact at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain and that is that some of you people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my latest Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I don't believe an evil spirit sent from hell would take the time to write this shit. He'd be just out doing his murders, living his best life. This is clearly a man who has no grasp of reality or is pretending to be crazy for the publicity of it all. I mean, with this letter, New Orleans literally crapped themselves. He had the whole city in the palm of his hand with these threats. If nothing else, the guy knew what he was doing when he wrote that letter. I do have to say though, I can't be the only person that actually thinks it's kind of funny that the only thing that can save you is yes i mean i'm a bloodthirsty savage and i will slice your head off but dang it i love a bop so nobody really knows if the real Axeman wrote that letter. It could have been a copycat or just some random trying his hand at fame at the time. However, the people of New Orleans took this shit seriously. And on March 19th, just like he demanded, the city was overwhelmed with the sound of jazz music. And no attack came. 
however, don't get comfortable because on August 10th, 1919, Steve Boker, another grocer, was attacked in his bedroom by an axe-wielding intruder. Steve woke to find his attacker looming over the top of him, and after finally regaining consciousness after the attack, Steve ran out into the street. Upon realising his head has been cracked open, he ran to his neighbour's house, Frank Ganusa. At this point, Steve lost consciousness again and collapsed. Just like before, nothing at the scene had actually been stolen, and once again a panel on the back door had been chiselled away. Although Boker did not die from the attack, his memory was pretty much non-existent afterwards. This attack occurred after the infamous letter was released to the press. Sarah Lauman was too attacked on the night of September 3rd. Neighbours came to check on Sarah and actually had to force their way in when she didn't answer. They found Sarah to be unconscious on her bed with a severe head wound and missing some of her actual teeth. The intruder had gained access through an open window this time and had attacked Sarah with a blunt object. Again, however, a bloody axe was found on the front lawn of Sarah's building. Sarah did recover from her traumatic attack but could not remember anything. Since the assailant had entered through the window and not the door, police did consider at the time that it could be a copycat rather than the real Axeman. Now we come to the last of the Axeman's known murders. Mike Peppertone was attacked on the night of October 27th. His wife woke up and entered Mike's bedroom to find he had been struck in the head and again was covered in blood. She recalls that the blood spatter was covering the walls, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. She claimed to have seen two men fleeing the scene, but no suspects were ever actually found. And just like that, the Axeman was done. He was never seen or heard from again and vanished. Maybe he was a spirit and just poofed himself out of existence. Now going over this case, certain things just don't make a lot of sense to me and I wish I had more of an explanation. In almost every case, a small hole was carved out of a door. Why choose this method of entry? It isn't very practical and can take up precious time. Why did he always leave his chisel behind at the scene? The one he used to pry off door panels. Why was there always an axe at the scene, but it was never actually his own, it belonged to the victims? Why did he majority attack Italian grocers, but then occasionally switch it up? What is the connection, the motive? His victims were two, mainly women. Men only suffered blows if they actually got in the axe man's way and never seemed to be the primary target. Many of the victims were Italian Americans, who at the time represented the Big Easy's white underclass. Is it racially motivated or is it gender motivated? Does he hate women? or does he hate Italians? It's pretty murky. Anyways, we can't have a mystery murder without there being at least a few suspects thrown in along the way. Now, since the majority of the Axeman's attacks were on Italian-American grocers, there was some belief at the time that all victims were an early form of mafia crime, called the Black Hand. Black Hand crime was a name given to an extortion method used in Italian neighbourhoods at the time, so the murders could have been linked to some extortionary debts. However, the Axeman frequently left his suspects alive, which many mafia experts believed would not have been the case if they'd have been true black hand attacks. Now, of course, we have the theory that they were copycat killers all over the place. Although the Axeman obviously had a pretty distinct MO, not all of the killings were the same and followed it to a letter, leading some to believe that the Axeman was in fact several people who may or may not have been working together to terrorise the community at the time. Now, obviously, he could have been a demon. He did appear in people's houses and vanish just as quickly, and his letter had claimed that he would be the worst spirit ever. However, I personally prefer the theory of Joseph Mumphrey. Now, Mumphrey is the only legitimate suspect to ever have been linked to the Axeman case. Mumphrey, at the time, led a blackmailing gang in New Orleans that targeted Italian-Americans. In December 1920, a year after the Axeman had struck his last victim, Mumphrey himself was shot dead by the widow of that victim in Los Angeles. 
Now, Mrs. Peppertone claimed Mumphrey was the axe man and remembered seeing him run from the bedroom the night her husband was killed. Now, Mumphrey had served time in prison, the dates apparently coinciding between 1912 and 1918, when the axe man attacks actually stopped. They resumed at the time Mumphrey was a free man. Now, he left New Orleans after the killing of Mike Peppertone, his last victim, again explaining maybe why the axe man seemingly disappeared after that. I mean, as far as theories go, this isn't the worst one. It's definitely better than spirit. Do I think it was a demon? No, definitely not. Honestly, I'm not convinced of any of these. Whoever this guy was either quit whilst he was ahead or got himself killed off. Either way, I don't think the world is ever gonna know who the Axeman really is. This is one case that will remain unsolved. And here is where we end. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Be sure to let me know what you think and join me next time for another killer tea party. Like I said, your support means the world to me. It's awesome and I thank you. Now, next episode will be filled with murder, crime and all that good stuff. So be sure to check it out. Now, watch your back, try not to get murdered and I'll see you next time. Cheers.